Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. Um, and thanks to Skylight Books for, for asking me to come here tonight. Um, it's kind of a especially nice occasion with tomorrow night being, um, or tomorrow being um, Independent Bookstore Day, so I'm sure there's going to be a lot of cool stuff going on here today. Can you hear me okay? I want to make sure I get this mic thing going. Um, so I've been here uh, as a customer for many years and always thought, ah, oh, if I ever published a book, this would be a great place to come and, and read. So um, it's very gratifying to, to be here to, to be here tonight. Um, and uh, yeah, as it as, as was mentioned, um, I'm from uh, Los Angeles, specifically from um, southeastern Los Angeles, um, which is about 30 miles away uh, from, from Whittier. That's where I was born, and then I um, lived for a few years in La Mirada and then grew up in Whittier, and uh, that's where I went to school and then um, graduated from high school. And it's been funny this, being up in, in this part of Los Angeles for a couple, couple of days here uh, doing some readings and events and just looking back at when I was growing up, and even though Whittier's only 30 miles away, it definitely seems like it's another, it's almost another realm, and um, it's very different. And so this part of Los Angeles for me growing up was mostly coming to Dodger games and um, visiting my dad at his office. He worked in downtown Los Angeles for for many years, and um, so uh, as a teenager, I would used to come and do some crazy stuff in L.A., but we won't talk about that part um, tonight, so I don't want to get uh, any... Well, there's statute limitations, I guess. I'm, I think I'm safe at this point in time. But, um, um, but when it came time for a setting for this book, I um, gravitated towards familiar uh, territory, um, but I also wanted to set the book in a part of Los Angeles that you don't typically hear about all that much. Um, it's, you know, in these representations of L.A. is typically very one-dimensional, one-sided, and as all of you know, Los Angeles is a very uh, diverse, vast place, so um, when it came time for the setting, I just wanted to show a side of Los Angeles that doesn't typically get uh, depicted very, very often. But um, what what got me started on the book um, before that? I feel like I, I feel like I want to dance with this mic a little bit here. Um, what got me started on the book? Um, before the setting was uh, belief and the the question of belief, the mystery of belief, and not only uh, religious belief but also uh, secular belief, um, more of the commonplace everyday type of beliefs that we have. And now, yeah, echo. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, and so it kind of set me down a, a, a path of, of exploration, and it really started back in the mid to late 1990s. Um, I know I'm dating myself a little bit there, but I heard a story about a young girl from uh, Massachusetts who had been in a swimming pool accident, and she had uh, sustained uh, brain damage, and she was in uh, in a coma. And uh, in the uh, in the wake of this accident, there were all these stories that began to circulate. Stories that the girl was capable of performing miracles and could heal the sick. And um, people started to come to this girl's house. They began to line up. Um, they camped out overnight to spend time uh, with with the girl. And it got so bad that at one point in time, the family ended up. Uh, cutting out uh, a hole in the side of their garage to install this um, 
like a plexiglass window so people could file by and more people could could say their prayer to the girl and, and, and spend time with her. Um, and so when I heard about this, I was just fascinated by it. I'd always been fascinated by these stories of people coming to these sites of, of supposed miracles and wondered, well, why do they come there and what do they hope to find and what's going on in their lives that's compelling them to to show up at these places? Are, are they there just for the, the sheer spectacle of it or is there some sort of communal aspect to it? So that got me started on on the, the idea that this might be a, a premise for a, for a book, and um, kind of went down a, a series of writerly what if questions, and I thought, well, what if the story took place in um, suburban Los Angeles, where I'm from? Uh, what if the mother of the girl wasn't actually religious? In the case that I was telling you about, uh, the woman in Massachusetts, she was very religious, and she was very um, convinced that her daughter was this um, divine instrument of God, this earthly manifestation of God. And um, I thought, well, what if the mother was more like the reader and um, really wasn't sure what to make of all this and was trying to figure out, well, what's true and what's happening? And and uh, I wondered, well, what if the father was estranged from the family and um, was trying to kind of find his way back home to the family? And what if the setting was the closing months of 1999 at the end of the millennium when there's all this crazy Y2K hysteria? I don't know if you remember all that, but it's, it wasn't that long ago. I like to joke that this is a historical novel. It takes place in 1999, even though it wasn't that long ago. It certainly certainly feels like a long time ago. At least it does to me. Um, I mean, there was you know talk of the end of the world. There was a uh, threats of terrorist bombings and plots and such. And so, so all of this kind of you know started to to, to get me going on this book. And um, so it's um, if you kind of look at it from start to finish, I got that initial spark was in the late '90s, and then here we are, <laughs> 2015. So it's a bit of a long gestation period, but it's just really gratifying to have the book um, finally come out and be able to go on a, a little book tour. It started out earlier this week in San Diego. Uh, that's where I currently live, and uh, it's been great to be up here in uh, Los Angeles to do some things um, as, as well. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, a couple different parts of, of the book. The first thing I'm going to read is the, uh, the prologue from the book. And so that's going to kind of set up the story for you. So in addition to the, um, the story of the family and, and the girl, um, the, the book also tells the story of all the people who come to the house, the, the visitors, the believers, and people come for various reasons and want something in their lives that they feel like this girl can, can give to them. So, but I'm going to start reading the um, the prologue, which prologues are supposed to kind of set up the story, right? So this should hopefully set it up for you if I if I if I did my job. But I'm going to take a sip of water first. Okay. Oops. I don't need that anymore. Anyways. All right. So this is how it begins. The crowds keep coming, more and more every day, it seems. But in the beginning, it was just the random neighbor or stray soul from the surrounding area, drawn by rumor and whisper and desperate wish. Word spread. Somehow they heard about the little girl on Shaker Street, the one who almost died, who should have died, but didn't. And now... She can't speak or move. She's paralyzed, mute, hooked up to machines and tubes, her body a living statue, but also holy, 
blessed, a gift from God, a child who heals and gives hope to those in need. And it went from there, slowly at first, a mysterious massing thing with a life of its own, people appearing at the house, odd and urgently curious, polite as churchgoers, something ancient in their eyes. They find their way, clutching foldable maps and Thomas guides and handwritten directions, in this, the fall of 1999, the much-publicized final year of the millennium. For reasons known, unknown. Yes, the full-on tragedies and crushing misfortunes, the kind of sorrow you'd expect. As well as the everyday, the shitty little speed bumps of life, the work problems, the marital despair, the doomed conspiracies of the heart. The girl might be able to help, so why not go and see for themselves? They park their cars and walk up to the small one-story house, arriving singly or in pairs or in larger groups, sometimes entire families even, multiple generations seeking relief, holding hands, chanting the names of loved ones. You wouldn't believe the traffic getting here, the freeway, a nightmare, crawl. It's like any neglected house in any neglected neighborhood. The yellowed lawns and chain-link fences and toppled children's toys, the latter discarded and forgotten, the plastic leached of color long ago. Trees are sparse and frequent. The doorbell doesn't work. And if someone is already inside the house spending time with the girl, they remain outside and endure the Southern California sun, shading their eyes, waiting their turn. Because now, sometimes, there's a line, depending on the hour and day of the week, Saturday mornings being the worst. And if that's the case, and if the line grows and more visitors arrive, conversations spark, stories are exchanged. It passes the time and reminds them of why they've made this journey. They marvel at how the narratives are the same or different or a little of both. Yet all share a common theme, the need to believe, the yearning for something beyond oneself. I'm here, but I'm not sure why I'm here, someone might say waiting and looking up briefly at the sky swollen with light and heat. You'll know once you get inside, another will explain. That's what they say. Others know exactly why they've come. Personal addictions, substance, sexual, various disorders, physical, psychological, spiritual. Parents with cancer are one of the lesser-tiered diseases, daughters who have lost their sense of smell and taste, sons who have lost their sense of love and kindness, siblings, cousins, nephews, nieces who are simply lost, friends who could not make the trip due to their own particular infirmity but desperately require the girl's help, her saintly, sacred intervention because it's the last hope they have. The time's apparently calling for a new way to understand, a new way to be. Once inside, they are greeted by the mother and then led through the living room and down a hallway into the girl's room. And there she is, 
They behold her in her perpetual repose, sleeping beauty-like, but eyes alarmingly open, unblinking, unmoving, her hair long and dark and freshly shampooed. They hear the hum of machines, the ventilator's insistent suck. They ask if it's all right to touch her. The mother always says yes, and it always surprises them how warm the girl's skin is, how it is burning, burning with God. The time invariably elapses too quickly. They are never ready to leave. Just another minute, please. And so they pray harder and mumble faster, and the minute expires, and they go. On the way out, they linger so they can ask questions. How long ago did it happen? Was she in a lot of pain? Is she in a lot of pain? Does she know we're here? Is there any awareness that, you know, this is happening? The mother can only answer the first question. The accident was nine months ago, another lifetime ago. For the rest, she shrugs, says the doctors don't know for sure. No one knows for sure. But many people think yes. Yes, she knows. Yes, she's aware. Yes, she's with us. It's all unfolding in front of her as if she's watching a movie. Then they thank her, the mother, repeatedly, trying to say what cannot be said. What else can they do? There are other people waiting, and it's time to move on. The day now more vivid, more substantial, in fuller focus. Could it be that the curative has already begun? They exit the house and step back out into the sun, the judgment gone, the light flooding everything and everyone. Light that does not cause them to shade their eyes, but to open them farther, see clearer, see deeper. Light that's alive, light that's viscous, light that connects and fills and sustains, light that reflects inwardly, outwardly, and seemingly has no end, light that's like a breath, like oxygen, the light, the light, everywhere, the light. Oh, thank you. So that's how, so that's how the novel opens up, and... So at that point in time, the the um, the media notoriety of the, this girl um, supposedly being capable of miracles kind of intensifies, and so her mother has to kind of navigate all that in addition to, to taking care of her daughter. And so, as I said before, there's a group of people who you know who come to the house and 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 want to see her and spend time with her. And one of the per, uh, people in the book who um, wants to come and find out what's going on is somebody who's actually very skeptical of all this. And um, he wants to debunk, basically, the, the, whole, the whole thing. And his name is Nathaniel. And I'm just going to read you um, an introduction to, to him. So this character is, uh, is Nathaniel, the skeptic in the book. These things can be explained. The weeping icons, the bleeding statues, the healing of disease, the aberrations of sky and sun and light, the apparitions of Jesus and Mary and Springsteen. Because the answers are there. It's only a matter of knowing how to look, how to see beyond the glow and the primitive need to believe. But wanting to believe doesn't make it true. 
Truth is what makes it true. Was that a quote from somewhere? This is what Nathaniel Zoline wants to say when his mother asks him, what's new, as they browse the laminated jumbo-sized red lobster menus full of seafood specials and kid meals and exotic cocktails he'll never order. <laughs> the occasion, his father's 68th birthday, a midweek evening out after a day of teaching Linnaeus and binomial nomenclature to bored teenagers, Nathaniel making the drive from Daly City down to San Jose when he'd rather be home, researching, writing, living his true life. But instead, he says what he always says when similarly queried by his mother. Fine, good, work is good, things are good, moving right along, can't complain. What's on his mind, though, is the recent increase in reports of the miraculous, the strange, the millennial. Because when he's not teaching biology to sophomores, he's working on his website and sporadically published newsletter, The Smiling Skeptic. And lately, it's all about the girl in the coma in L.A. That's why he doesn't want to be here. He wants to be online so he can see what the day's search results yield, and he wants to start his article about the girl, about false hope, about the blind embrace of faith. And so that's uh, a, a bit of Nathaniel, who eventually, uh, as the book progresses, does make the trip down to Los Angeles to, uh, um, well, I won't say too much to, no spoilers, right? So um, he, does, he does come down and, and visit uh, the girl. Um, now this last part I'm going to read is um, uh, from the perspective of a neighbor of the girls. This is uh, a woman named Mavis Morris. She lives across the street um, from the girl, whose name is Annabelle. And uh, so she's been witnessing all the comings and goings of all these people in the media, brouhaha and everything. And um, her husband, Marcus, is much more skeptical and kind of doesn't want anything to do with it and is very dismissive of the whole phenomenon. But Mavis had, uh, had suffered from miscarriage many years ago and uh, was told by the doctors that she would not be able to have, have a child uh, after that. Um, but she's still kind of hoping against hope that it's still going to happen, again, whereas her husband is, is kind of wants to move on. But um, she finally convinces her husband to go pay a visit to the girl. So they go and they, and they, they pay a visit. And um, so this is um, Mavis um, thinking about what it would be like if she did, in fact, get pregnant and what would happen if she did uh, have a child. The baby boy's name, by the way, is Anthony. He is growing and will continue to grow, grow until he's ready to come out. The eight and a half months will fly by. Marcus will hold him in his arms and then, there, all the doubt and hesitation and everything else will disappear. They will be parents at last. Anthony will coo and gurgle and charm them. A baby, a boy, look. Marcus's diapering skills will improve. The adjustment will be hard, but worth it. So, so satisfying. Baby Anthony will crawl, then walk. Sounds, then words will fill his beautiful mouth. They will tell him things, teach him things. Their house will become what it's never been, a home. They will, however, eventually move to a bigger house, a better neighborhood, with better schools and better malls, better everything. 
Marcus's back will heal and he'll be able to work again. Anthony will grow, grow, the miracle of childhood. He will start school and excel. My, as teachers will say, what a smart boy, what a bright boy. You've got a very special child there, Mr. and Mrs. Morris. Good things will happen. Promotions at work, investments paying off, time at the gym and regular doctor checkups and clean bills of health. Anthony, a boy that will hug freely and without restraint, that will be warm and loving, and that also will like sports. Baseball, that will be his game, and he will excel here as well, and they will attend all his games, support him, and love him, always love him. Then it will be junior high already, and the girls will call on the phone, naturally. Anthony's sweet and a little shy. Marcus having started his own business, following his dream, and will take off from there. And there will be another house and an even better school. Life amazes, and Anthony will make all-stars for the second year in a row. Plus, they'll take vacations to Hawaii and Europe. Then high school will be upon them, Anthony joining clubs and, of course, the baseball team. They'll purchase a new car for Mavis, a Mercedes, even though she rarely drives, hates driving, and yet lives in L.A. Funny, right? And pretty soon, Anthony himself will be driving, applying to colleges, and thinking he wants to be either a scientist or a lawyer. And through it all, As the years accumulate and yield better and better things, Mavis will every now and then think of the girl, think of their old neighbor, how on that day she touched Annabelle and then touched her own stomach, how something must have passed from the girl to Mavis and everything thereafter was blessed, everything thereafter was changed. And you could argue it was the girl or Mavis's own positive thinking, or that's just how things would have worked out anyway. It didn't matter, because it all happened. Her life finally happened the way it was supposed to happen, and it was all beautiful, and just like she'd always pictured it. Thanks. So, I, traditionally in readings, there is the reading section, and then there is the question and answer section. So, if you'd like to follow the traditional format of the reading, I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Yes. Yeah. yeah I just want to make a comment. Sure. I'm a poet. Uh huh. And as you're reading, I'm seeing the poetry of your words. Oh, wow. Thank you. you know, so, so <laughs> And the other thing I, I, I noticed, and I really like, because I'm a minimalist, if you will, kind of mm-hmm. in staccato fashion. Uh-huh. You don't write in a staccato fashion, but your writing is tight. You use ten words to describe the world, and somebody else would probably use a hundred words. So, wow. so what I get from you is in your readings a certain immediacy. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you because you don't let me wander off into the desert. You keep me focused. Wow. You keep me in the story. Mm-hmm. And... And you make it seem so easy. I know it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so I, want to, I want to say that. So, so. Well, thank you very, very much. That's that's wonderful to hear. Thank and, you. And, and you read well. When I say read well, I'm not trying to give a compliment. I'm just saying. Yeah. You know your material. You feed your material. You breathe in your material. So when you read, 
it's very natural. It's like you're breathing. Yeah. And I love that because there's nothing in the way. Yeah. But you eat. Wow. So that's why they're Wow, I wish I'd, I guess that is being recorded, right, for the podcast, so thank you, because I want to go back and, and listen to that. Well, I thank you, I mean, my heart's beating just hearing all that, um, I, it's, I really appreciate that, and no, we don't know each other, we didn't meet briefly before the reading, so, <laughs> in case you're wondering, um, that's, really, that's really nice to hear, yeah, and f- as far as the reading goes, I, it was funny, I was telling somebody this the other night, I think, I mean, it's something I haven't done a lot of, but um, I read to my kids at night, when before they go to bed and so I think over the course of many years you kind of develop maybe a rhythm or a way to read and so I think that has something to to do with it Um, and again this is only the second or third reading I've done for this book I've done a few readings where a group of people but you know this is only my third time where it's just just me so thank you that that um, makes you feel (laughs) good thank you I appreciate that yeah yeah Hello, Mary Kate. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Good. So I do know you. <laughs> this better be really good then, right? We work together as writers in our day jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm only right now maybe a quarter of the way into the book. I just started reading okay. it yesterday, but I'm like flying through. Oh, it. thank you. Thank you. And I'm curious to know how you ultimately came up with the structure of the book. Yeah. So, as you were writing this, did you go into the story with a particular bias one way or another? 
sort of open-ended and open to interpretation. I mean, I didn't want to have it, you know, be like, I, I wanted it so the reader could basically read it from, yes, these things are true, maybe they're true, I don't know, or, you know, or, or not. So that was one thing I kind of decided fairly, fairly early on, is to just to have those multiple uh, interpretations that, that were possible. It might have evolved a little bit, you know, along the way with some of, some of the characters, but um, just from the outset, I wanted to keep it very, very open-ended. And so, again, that was another one of the real tricky parts of the book. I mean, um, and again, I hope it came off okay, but it was, that was one of the really tricky parts, is to try to, to maintain that open-endedness and a- ambiguity that I was trying to go after. You know. Kara, did you have a question? Or? Yeah, um, I think it's an amazing feat for you to write a novel while you know, being a dad, having yeah. a job, you know, working at the time. And so my question is, how do you keep everything in balance and how do you stay focused? Because, you know, it's a big and you have other responsibilities Yeah. 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 Oh, thanks. You might want to ask Maria. She'll probably give a better answer than I did. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. It is quite a balancing act. Um, I mean. W- w- the way it eventually worked out, I mean, I'd started this book many years ago and put it down to write something else. And then when I went back to it to really focus solely on that, I basically, yeah, I was at a point of time where I'd, we'd had twins and we had another son. And so I would just get in this regimen of waking up 4.35 o'clock and I would just work an hour or an hour and a half or whatever I could get in. And so I had a little time um, uh, when the house was kind of quiet and I just like to write when I'm waking up and my brain's still kind of waking up too. And it just seems like there's a, a receptivity that goes on there in the morning hours, at least for me. I kind of fade as the day uh, tends to go on. So so I just having that and then, you know, I take the kids to my mom's and drop them off on the weekends. So I just get a two or three hour stretch to work on it. So that was a real luxury to get actual two or three hours but it took a while and so it just um, I just tried the best I could to sustain the momentum and then even if I only tweaked a sentence or something if I could feel at the end of the day like it got better that was my mantra like did it get better yes that was a successful writing day I mean it might have only been 10 or 15 minutes and oftentimes it was Um, then I could take satisfaction and that could kind of carry me over into the next day because as you know Kara too you know being a mom I mean it's just it's hard to make the time and just to be in the the right headspace too to just to fully uh, dedicate yourself to it and that's why I mentioned asking Maria because like writers tend to be in this I call it a fiction fog where you're like writing and then you go back to your real life but then your mind is still thinking about the story that you were writing on in the morning so that's you know I'm often in a fiction fog so but I'm, I'm trying to get better yeah. yes Howard repeat customer thank you thank you Howard um, I thought it was really interesting if you would share with everybody you talked about doing some research around belief and the power of belief and how that factors into writing books. Yeah, yeah, as far as the research, um, 
And I, I wrote an article kind of about the research that I did for the book, and I started the article by saying I'm basically not a very big research guy. And, and, um, and I'm probably not, but as I sat down and wrote this article, I kind of started to realize that, well, yeah, I actually did quite a bit of, of research and reading um, um, books like How We Believe by Michael Shermer. He's written some really interesting books, and um, I read a study, um, I think it was called Looking for Miracles. It just talked about, you know, there are some examples that I was able to pull and bring into the book. And um, just read a lot of stuff about the millennium, too, even though I'd kind of you know, lived through it and all that. I was just curious about like how different uh, ages have approached this, you know, the end of, end of the world and all these, kind of, these kinds of things. So it kind of came to more than I really um, thought it was. But I typically, what I, what I did with the research is that I did it, and it's more of kind of an as-you-need-to-know basis. Some writers, they really like to immerse themselves in, in research before they start writing. But I just kind of can't help myself. I just start writing. And so if I need something, then I'll turn to some, you know, I'll go online and try to find a little bit something else uh, out about a particular subject. So it's a little haphazard. And um, but um, again, when I kind of sat down and realized, oh, I actually did quite a bit of research. It was definitely more than what I initially thought when I started writing that article. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. All right. Well, thanks again so much for coming. I know it's a Friday night, and um, so I really appreciate you coming out. And um, happy to sign any books if we if uh, people are so inclined and we have one last announcement yeah and we have one last announcement when you stand up would you be so kind as to fold up your chairs and leave them on this side of the store we're going to set up a table and then just do the signing the line will go that way okay thank you so much for coming thanks again everybody thank you You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.